If you're here visiting, welcome. You happen to be here at a very unique day because I am going to give a report on a trip I took to Berlin and also Wittenberg, Germany. For those of you who are unaware or may have forgotten, we support a church plant in the heart of downtown Berlin. And I was supposed to go there to visit and to encourage the saints there actually about a year and a half ago. But the Lord, the Lord saw fit to give me a disease that prohibited me from traveling internationally. So I couldn't go. And in hindsight, it ended up being a tremendous blessing because I was able to kind of partner my trip to the church plant with a once-in-a-lifetime conference at the birthplace of the Reformation. And if you don't know what the Reformation is, or you don't know the significance of it, you can't be in a better place this morning. Because you're going to get an elementary education on the significance and importance of the Reformation. But first of all, the main reason why I went, as I've said, was to visit our missionary, Marco and Katrina Bartolome. Marco is also a graduate of the Master Seminary, but he, he, he and I met before that, when I went there on a short-term mission trip in 2012. When I was a seminary student, I went, sent by Grace Community Church in California, to support a ministry called the EBTC, the European Bible Training Center, which is a Bible school that exists to train European pastors. And so when I was there in 2012, I was so impacted and so encouraged and impressed by the caliber of these men and what they were doing. I mean, other than going to Iraq, I never left the country. I, I, I had no clue about any other cultures in America. So not only did I was was I exposed to the German, you know, European culture, but but it was it was so impactful to see men that I had never even heard of before or and I would have never seen unless I went there. They're doing the same exact thing we're doing. They're laboring for the gospel, the teaching the word of God. And we were so we were so like minded and knit together, even though we live on the opposite side of the world. Isn't that amazing? And so I thought to myself, if I ever become a pastor with any influence at all, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that my ministry supports the EBTC. Because there are very few schools in Europe, because it's so liberal, that are training men to preach the word with the supposition that it's inerrant. There's only one place in Germany where you can go to get a solid theological education. That's the EBTC. I'm not saying that to sound arrogant or ignorant. It's true. Keep in mind, Germany is about the size of Texas, maybe, you know? So, so it's very small, and, that, and that's why a lot of men, like Marco, if they want to get an accredited, comprehensive theological education that's not liberal, guess where they got to go? they got to come to the land of the free. <laughs> where we still have religious freedom. Because in other parts of the world, the government will not accredit Bible schools because they're too conservative. So, I came to what used to be Carnation Bible Church, now affectionately and proudly known as Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church. I I, I kind of brought the idea to the elders at the time that you know, this EBTC school is solid, and, and you know, we wanted to support an international mission. We also support Camp Gilead as a local mission, but we wanted to support an international missionary, so I suggested this, and long story short, I convinced them to do it. And so when I approached the dean of the EBTC back in 2015, um, the man whom I had served in 2012, he said, thanks for the support, but... We're getting ready to launch a group of men from our school to plant a church. And it just so happens to be a guy named Marco whom you know. So give your money to him because I don't need it. He needs it. So I did what he said. 
I brought back that information, and we began we began supporting Marco and Katrina Bartolome as one of the head pastor, one of the lead pastors of Eckstein Gemeinde Berlin. That's how you say it in German. Aren't you impressed? <laughs> now, don't ask me what that says. I didn't look it up, but that's Eckstein is the German word for cornerstone. Gemeinde is the German word for church. So, Cornerstone Church Berlin. And there's the website if you guys are ever interested. It's all in German, but you know if you ever do want to take a peek at it, uh, I would encourage you to do that. And so, so I went there on May 12th. I got there May 13th because it's a long trip. So I got there May 13th. Um, went out to dinner and had some fellowship, and then Sunday was the next day. And so here's here's Marco and his family going into church on Sunday. Here's the entrance of the building which also just so happens to be the same facility where the EBTC conducts their business. And so they're able to use, a, a, it's actually a new remodeled facility right in the heart of Berlin along the river. And so it's, it's, it's a really, really awesome location and perfect location. Here's the inside when you walk in. So you have all the books there. There's a book, the little bookstore for the for the. Um, EBTC, um, and then there's Marco happily working away on Sunday morning. You know, the pastors, you know, shockingly, they show up to church and they have a lot to do before church starts. And so he's, uh, he's working on his computer doing last-minute stuff for the Sunday morning service in his office. Here, that looks familiar, right? Daniel's saying yes. That's They're getting ready to... Um, uh, lead the music for the uh, Sunday morning worship, and they have all the chairs and stuff set up. That's just, I just wanted to give you just a, a, a little idea of what it looks like, what their church looks like. And as I said, it's really interesting because as you look out the windows, um, it's right on the river. And so it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of annoying because you're, you're trying to listen to a sermon, and all of a sudden you see all these tourists cruise by on a large boat. And so it's nice to be on the river that looks really nice, but, you know, that's pretty distracting. How would you like a big boat cruising by the window when you're trying to listen to me? It's hard enough to listen to me as it is, let alone having a big boat, right? And then after church, you know, they do what we do. They, they hang out for fellowship and, uh, and, and have snacks and stuff, and it was just a really sweet time. I mean, their church is probably about the same size as ours, and, uh, and they're just, um, just seeing growth. And they're seeing um, a lot of discipleship going on. And they're seeing a lot of new people come in that are looking for solid Bible exposition. But it's, it's, it's even rarer there than it is here. Here in America, you at least get some type of conservative theology, you know, within a 30-minute driving distance, right? Something like that. Well, there, um, there there's, there's literally... Roman Catholics, state churches, which is kind of a loose evangelical Lutheranistic type flavor of church. Then you have a large population where it's secular. And then you have very, very few churches that teach the Bible verse by verse and, and that believe, profess to believe it's inerrant. So, anyhow... Moving on, I got to hold a baby doll. That's one of the, that's one of the music guy's baby girls. Um, he just became a dad and a husband, so uh, became a yeah became a husband first though. And uh, and that's me and Marco after the service. Um, during during the church service, um, I got up and I explained to the congregation who I was. Um, I to, I explained to them a little bit about our church, and I just let them know that we're praying for them and we love them and. We, we are supporting them from the other side of the pond. And so it was a sweet time of fellowship. It was, a, I think, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the folks didn't really understand. They might have heard our name before. They might have heard my name. But, you know, when, you, when you're able to put a face to a name and have somebody actually come from another part of the country to encourage you, you know, that, that's, that's, that's why I went. Because I, I, don't, I don't think our missionary support should just be a name on the wall. I've been to a lot of churches where that's all it is. It's just a face on a wall, and that's not right. So 
I want I would love someday to take some of you guys to Germany and and, and come alongside them and help them. And uh, I want to have Marco come and spend time with us as much as he can. So I, I want I'm the type of guy that I want to be invested financially and spiritually all the way. I don't, I don't want to have a dozen missionaries that we give 20 bucks a month to and we never ever see them. I'd rather use what resources we have and go all in. And then when the Lord prospers us and His timing, we can bring on another guy and do the same thing with him. But so, so that's where we're kind of coming from. And that's, that's again, that's why I went, just to, just, to, just to encourage them, to let them know that we're supporting them, we're praying for them, we're um, supporting them financially, and you know we're, they, they have they have a sister church in America. So, and I'm doing this so you guys can also be a part of it. I went there to represent our church. I didn't go there, you know, for vacation. I went there to represent us. And so there's just a, a larger shot of the church. She gets pretty modest, you know. A room just probably the size of this one, and uh, they're they're doing they're doing a lot of good things, and and uh, they're seeing fruit already. So I think that's it. Now, just kind of a preview to this. Um, when I again when I went there in 2012, um, one of the things I got to do was uh, serve at a family retreat that the church was having. The church we went there to, to serve as a short-term mission um, team. They, they were having a family uh, out or a family camp or a family event. I don't know what they called it, but uh, and it was in Wittenberg. And so when I went there in 2012, you know, five years ago, they had banners all over the town advertising the 500th anniversary of, of the Reformation. And so being a former Catholic and just really being passionate about this, this, this stuff, I, I, told, I told the guys, I'm coming back whether you like it or not. <laughs> in 2017, I want you to put me to work. Because I want to be involved in putting together this historic conference. And so, um, you know, I expected to pick up trash and... Uh, you know, you know, serve meals or something. I, I told Christian, the guy who was overseeing it, just I, I, I want to help this, this conference be a success because I want other people who are might not be as passionate or knowledgeable about the Reformation to be, you know, to get there and soak it all up. So, but they didn't assign me to pick up garbage. They assigned me to be Steve Lawson's um, aide or basically slave for the duration of the conference. And if you don't know he's, who Steve Lawson is, shame on you. I'm just kidding. Steve Lawson, he is, he is a well-known preacher, a prolific author. He's a preaching professor at the Master's Seminary. And, and in my opinion, he's one of the best living preachers there is today. He's, he's known for a strong, reformed, expository preaching style. And if you ever want to go listen to him, which you should, Number one, you'll kind of understand me a little bit more. <laughs> you know, because Jesus said a disciple will become like his teacher. So I learned, I, he, he's the one time how to preach. And, and, and not only that, you, you, will, you will just um, be extremely convicted and edified by his preaching. So um, I got to spend time with Steve, personal time with Steve Lawson. We had meals together. We, we went to another town called Erfurt where Luther went to the monastery and was ordained. I mean, it was just an un- unforgettable experience. And I didn't know I was going to have this privilege until about two months before the conference. So I, I was like a little kid at Disneyland. I mean, I, there was no place I'd rather be. It was, just, it was just a tremendous gift to be in Wittenberg with Dr. Stephen J. Lawson. So you can be a little bit jealous. It's okay. But, yeah, so, so it was, the purpose of this conference was to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. 
And just to make sure we're on the same page, if it wasn't for the Reformation, you would be Catholic. Yes, thank goodness. Thank goodness that God, in his sovereign providence, gave a troubled, angry monk the tenacity to speak out against this. Anybody want to take a crack at what that is? What use, how about what's used for? Maybe that's, maybe that's a better question. What do you think? Yeah, that's right. What, do you know what it's called? Anybody remember what it's called? Yeah. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's a chest. That's an iron chest. But it was used for poor people to insert money to purchase an indulgence. In the medieval church, you could purchase an indulgence, which was just a piece of paper that would, that would get a relative or friend out of purgatory into heaven. And that's, I'm not making that up. And so, so Luther, when he began to study the scripture... Uh, it wasn't long before he figured out that maybe that's not biblical. And maybe that is, maybe that it is enslaving helpless peasants. And it is leading them straight to hell. And giving them false hope. And so Luther, as you know the story from there, wrote this document called the 95 Theses, which was 95 statements against Rome, primarily with regard to the practice of indulgences. Now, as a, as a side note, most scholars don't believe that Luther was saved at this time. But God still used, right? If God can use a donkey to talk, he can use an angry Catholic monk to change the world, right? And he did. So he, he went to this church. And this is called the Castle Church. And... In the 16th century, this is a wooden door. It, the original wooden door was destroyed during the Seven Years' War. Now it is a cast iron door with the 95 theses transcribed in German on them. Above you see a painting. You see Christ on the cross, and then you see Luther kneeling down beside the, resurrect, beside the cross, and then Philip Melanchthon, which was Luther's right-hand man, uh, fellow professor at the, at, the, at the University of Wittenberg. And so that's the place where the Reformation was sparked. And I got to go there. And so this picture on the left, this, this is me and Dr. Lawson inside the Castle Church. That's, that's where Luther nailed the theses. And then... Um, on the other side of town in Wittenberg, they have what they call the Luther House. That's where Luther lived. It was an old Augustinian monastery that was converted into kind of a boarding house where Luther lived and housed students that went to the University of Wittenberg. Have you guys ever heard of Table Talk Magazine or Table Talk? Table Talk Magazine is a magazine that's produced by R.C. Sproul Ligonier Ministry. Well, he got that from Martin Luther's Table Talks. Martin Luther was the one that kind of started the trend of pastor-professor-type guys getting a group of men, sitting around a table, and discussing theology. That was, that was Luther's deal. Before that, the Roman Catholic idea was that common people, that wasn't, that, that wasn't you know, something they should be doing. So Luther took his students, brought them into his home, sat them at his table, and they discussed and debated theology and contemporary issues. That's the table where that he used. It's pretty small, so it would be interesting to see how many guys they actually used to fit around it, but that was it. This is called the city church with the two towers, and that's the pulpit inside the church. That's where Luther preached most of his life. And so I could go on and on and on about this.
And since we are still in the 500th year of the Reformation, when we get close to October, I'm just going to warn you, I probably will. Probably will go a little bit deeper into the significance and the historicity of this movement. But for now, on the Lord's Day, I think I'm going to summarize and conclude this presentation. At the Luther House, there is also a museum. That's where that table was. They have his actual pulpit. They have the cloak he, the black cloak he wore, which is what professors wore at the time. And um, they had uh, an original edition of some of his hymns, some other, a bunch of other writings, and he, and they also have a first edition German translation. But you go, if you if you go through this museum, you'll see like quotations. Um, kind of all over the place. And this one stuck out to me. Where Christ is, there he always goes against the flow. Think about that. Where Christ is, there he always goes against the flow. Right? Jesus said that if you love me, they will hate you. And Luther not only had the tenacity to do what he initially did, he had the courage, despite his failures and weaknesses and embarrassments, he had those, but so did all of us, despite the constant threat on his life, despite the disease that was around him, despite the pushback, despite the, the constant, never-ending work of teaching and preaching and writing, he, he always, he, he never stopped until his, until his dying day. He was always pushing against the flow. He was always pushing against Rome. He was always pushing against the government. He was always pushing against those who would try to get in his way from his work. And he didn't do it for his own glory. He didn't do it so that there could be the denomination named after him. In fact, I should should have put that quote up here too. I have a, a little booklet of Luther quotes that I got from the conference. And in the back of that booklet, it says, in very bold Lutheresque terms, that he did not want to see a denomination named after him. And so that, that was kind of, I think that was kind of like the underlying, you know, attitude he had. You have to. Or else why would you be willing to continually and daily risk your life for people you don't even know? And, but he did it. So, that's all I have for that. Please continue to pray for Marco and Eckstein. Thank you for allowing me to go on this trip. Thank you for allowing me to represent this church to Marco and to everyone else I met at the conference. I met, I met pastors from all over the world. And I, I had an opportunity to tell them about this church, what I've gone through, and what how far the church has come in three years. And I'll end with this. Not only when I saw that quote up on the wall at the Luther house, that it made me just kind of smile. But, but that, that's, that's what is going to keep me going too. Right? What we teach, what we believe, what we stand for, is always going to go against the flow. It's going to go against the flow of the culture. It might go against the flow of what you were taught. It might go against the flow of our government. And so, just like Dr. Stephen J. Lawson says, we need more Luthers. We need Luthers that are willing to take a stand publicly, learn from his mistakes, but they're always willing to go against the flow. 
I guarantee that's what Marco's doing. Because they have it worse than we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to discuss these things. Thank you for the opportunity to share with these precious people about my experience in Germany and just the tremendous encouragement and excitement that I gleaned from my time in Wittenberg. Lord, we need another reformation. We need men and women to have the discipline to study your word and to apply it to do what Luther did and be willing to take a stand for the truth, for your glory, and not for ours. Help us, Lord, to be humble. Help us to receive your word willingly. Help us to receive your word with eagerness. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now for the most more important thing. With the time I have left, I want to sort of tie in my presentation with a biblical understanding of missions. And so, with that said, please take your Bible and go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy 2. Second Timothy 2. And as you're turning there, if you guys have questions about um, my trip to Germany or the Reformation, um, please, uh, please come up to me after the service, and I'd be happy to talk more about it. So I thought it would be most beneficial for me to take the next 25 minutes or so, the time we have left this morning, to show you from Scripture why we, in particular, are supporting a church like Eckstein. We are not supporting a young church plant in Berlin just because Marco and I had a prior relationship. It's not because we, as a church, or I, as a pastor, lack a burden for other people groups across the world. We support a church plant like Eckstein because SV Bible Church believes that missions should never be divorced from the local church. Missions should never be divorced from the local church. And what I mean by that is, if the ultimate mission of the universal church is to make disciples, right? Then it must involve teaching and baptizing, which are two responsibilities that are to be done within the confines or scope of the local church. Doing things like building homes, digging wells, and building orphanages are good works. I mean, most people, maybe even some of you, when you think of missions, one of the things that you think about are things like that. Building homes, digging wells, building orphanages, doing whatever type of practical, temporal charity. But those good works, and they are good if they're done with the right motive. It can be sin if it's done with the wrong motive. Those good works do not define biblical missions. You will not find anywhere in the Bible, anywhere, anyone being strictly devoted to social justice or to temporal charitable work. The Old Testament prophets preached, and they warned of their people's impending judgment. Their primary mission was to speak for or on behalf of Yahweh. The apostles were mainly consumed with preaching the gospel and shepherding the flock of God among them. In the pastoral epistles, which is the elders' manual for how to lead a church, First and Second Timothy and Titus, you will not find one single command to dig a well, construct a house, erect an ivory tower academy, or dream up any kind of parachurch ministry. You'll not find it in the New Testament. Have you thought about that? What do you find? You find apostolic commands to young pastors to fight the good fight, to pray, to not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, 
You find commands to discipline yourself. You find commands to pastors, to church leaders, to honor widows. To publicly rebuke unrepentant sinners. To pursue pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And you also find commands to prescribe. To command. To instruct. To give attention to the public reading of Scripture. To exhortation. To preaching. And guess what else? To teaching. That's it. The pastoral epistles command church leaders to be devoted to those things. Teaching other men to take their place so that the main mission of disciple-making may go on until Christ returns. That command is a priority for the church, and we know this to be absolutely true because of 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2 says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul was writing this command to a pastor. He was not writing to a new convert, an untrained, occasional churchgoer, not a novice, not a deacon, not a professor, not a program director, and certainly not a rogue individual. This is written to a pastor. And so we understand then that this is a primary aspect of shepherding. The pastor teacher's job in shepherding the flock is number one, feeding. And he does that by teaching and preaching. Did you understand that, that this platform right here is the pastor's number one shepherding tool? That's all this pulpit is. It's a shepherding tool. The pastor not only is supposed to feed, but he's also supposed to lead. And in 1 Timothy 5, it says that they do that by ruling. Ruling not as a dictator, but ruling as Christ would rule everyone. He does that by guiding and also counseling. And so this is why I will always be a champion for ministries like the Timothy Initiative. Our men's meeting that meets once a month for the purpose of training men to be leaders in the church and the home. Because men, you have, to be, you have to be reminded often that you cannot be God's kind of leader if you aren't deepening your understanding of who God is. And to know who God is, you need to make the study of theology a lifelong pursuit. One of my favorite pastors always used to say, the day you stop learning is the day you stop leading. And the same goes for ladies, too. But that's another issue altogether. My main goal for today is for you to, get, to gain a clear vision for why SV Bible Church is committed to supporting pastors of church plants. It's because of 2 Timothy 2.2. And so before we parachute into 2 Timothy 2.2, we need to understand its background and context a little bit. Paul's second letter to Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul, as you know, who was at the time nearing the end of his life. So he had to prepare as a responsible shepherd to pass on the mantle of ministry to the next generation of men. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So Paul knew that he was going to be dead soon. And he couldn't in good conscience leave this place without a plan. So he writes his inspired words from a prison cell. 
because he had reason to fear that Timothy, his son in the faith, was in danger of weakening spiritually. And so he writes to his son in the faith with a paternal tone. Recently, I read a story of a track runner who handed off the baton to the third man in the relay race. After a strong start by the first two men, the number three man with the baton in hand began sprinting down the backstretch of the track until gradually his teammates noticed that he began to slow down. And after a few seconds, his teammates witnessed him walk off the track in the middle of the race and sat down on a bench in the infield. And so shocked and upset, his teammates rushed over to him and they said, what happened? And that number three man's response was this. I didn't feel like running Now, can you imagine how let down and disgusted his teammates were? How would you feel? After putting all that work into training, you had just run your leg of the race, and your teammate just says, I don't feel like it anymore. Well, on an infinitely more important level, countless leaders in church history have simply dropped out of the Lord's service because... Of no better reason apathy. The same kind of apathy that collegiate runner had. And so Paul could sense, because he knew Timothy, that Timothy was on the verge of dropping out of the race. And so Paul writes. He writes not with only encouragement. He writes with a series of commands. Timothy had not yet reached the point of total apathy, but Paul knew he was going that direction. And so before this crisis could occur, Paul intervenes and he essentially says in this letter of 2 Timothy, don't give up. Don't let your fire for Christ die out. Your work is the Lord's and you have no right to quit or slack off until God takes you out of the game by death or by rapture. That, that's, that's the main gist of 2 Timothy. And as a side note, let me just be transparent with you. Every pastor, to some degree or another, at some point, has felt the same way Timothy did. And to be completely honest, I have. But like Timothy... I find a spiritual father in Paul who encourages me to press on. So Timothy's discouragement and timidity were a grave concern for Paul because Paul was counting on Timothy to take the mantle. And the core, integral part of the work of ministry was entrusting the things Paul taught him to other men who will in turn Teach others also. Now, before we get to chapter 2, verse 2, Timothy had to get his mind back on track. In chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy to rekindle afresh his gift. Now, that, that word should kind of create a picture in your mind of a, of a, of a little bonfire that's, that's nearly burnt out. Last night at my house, I had a bonfire. And... Everybody left the fire pit to go do what they wanted to do. I came back over and the, there was there was all ashes. And so I, I rushed to get some more wood, threw the wood on top. It didn't catch on fire. So I had to go get some more kindling and a, a big stick and just kind of poke at it and, and rekindle it so the flame would come back. And so so Timothy, in a sense, had lost his zeal. He had lost his fire. So Paul commands him to kindle afresh his gift in chapter 1, verse 6. Then he goes on in verse 7 to say, replace fear with power. Wow. 
How many pastors are encouraged to be powerful today? Not often. Replace fear with power and love. Love. Not bitterness, love. And get this. Also a sound mind. A sound mind. He goes on in verse 8 to say, Do not be ashamed of Paul or the Lord, and to hold on to the truth. Get a grip of it. And so summing up the problem that Timothy was having, he was weakening under the pressure of church and the persecution of the world. And so Paul is calling him to be strong, to get back on your feet, because guess what, buddy? When I'm gone, it's going to be on you. And so as we traverse through this letter, it's abundantly clear that Timothy was called to speak. He was called to speak to believers by teaching and preaching, by exhorting and instructing and sometimes rebuke. In other words, Timothy was being charged by Paul to remain faithful to what a shepherd is. A shepherd is one who faithfully delivers God's word to God's people. And part of that is teaching other men who will later teach other men to build up leaders and carry on the work That's what a pastor does, and it's also what a missionary does. He trains men. In 2 Timothy 2.2, we find one essential aspect of a pastor job description. And I'm going to submit to you that we must derive our philosophy of missions from this essential aspect as well. Because this is God's way for establishing for growing and sustaining a church. If you do a survey of the New Testament, missions existed for the purpose of establishing, growing, and strengthening local churches. And that is done by teaching. And so whenever we consider the aspect, or the prospect rather, of bringing on a new missionary, we first must ask, are they about the true gospel? And secondly, how do they plan to benefit, strengthen, and advance the church? Without true shepherds to teach other men to become shepherds and teachers, to reproduce themselves, their church will become spiritually ill and paralyzed, and it will evolve into a group of blind guides leading the blind. That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. If the current generation of elders, me and Aaron, and whoever God brings into our fold to become an elder someday, if we fail to obey 2 Timothy 2.2 by failing to train men, we are steering this church in the wrong trajectory. That is why it's so common that whenever a pastor leaves, there's a mass exodus. And when that new pastor comes... More people leave. You know, that might say something about the maturity of the congregation. But the brunt of the blame goes on leadership. Because he failed to train men to replace himself. A church should not depend on the personality or gifting of one man. Amen? So, men, I'm appealing to you. It's time for you to step up. It's time for you to come to the Timothy Initiative. It's time for you to learn the things that Paul entrusted to Timothy, that Timothy entrusted to his men, and so forth. So, if there is no ongoing theological training of men, then the elders are in sin, and the church will be weak. But don't take my word for it. I've rambled on enough. Let's put this one aspect of a pastor missionary's job under the microscope here. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit will teach you something this morning.
Look at that verse again. Second Timothy 2, verse 2. The things which Paul told Timothy. What are those things? Just real quick, it's simple. The sacred things, the sacred truths that Paul taught Timothy over several years of traveling together and ministering together in Ephesus. There are countless things in Scripture. Excuse me, let me rephrase that. There are countless things that Jesus spoke and the apostles spoke that are not recorded. So that would include those things, that those, those really intimate times of mentorship that Paul passed down to Timothy. But more than that, primarily, Paul's referring to the sacred truths revealed in the Word of God. And so this implies, like I alluded to already, that they had a close discipleship relationship. Now, you've all heard of the term discipleship, right? Right? It's, it's kind of loosely used in some circles. So I'll assume that it may mean something slightly different to everyone based on your own experience. Now, I don't have time to exhaustively cover the ins and outs of biblical discipleship, but what I will say is this. Not every professing believer should be discipled to the same level. What kind of men? Notice, what kind of men... Does Paul command Timothy to seek out? Faithful. Faithful. And we'll get to that in a minute. But right now, I want to dial in on that imperative. That command. It says entrust. It's not just a word for preach or teach or admonish or disciple. It's a word that carries the idea of depositing something valuable for safekeeping. Do people still have safety deposit boxes? Anybody have that? So, it, it kind of brings that image to our mind. So if you have something very valuable, that you don't want it to ever get stolen or damaged or burned in the house fire, you transport it to a bank, right? They lock it in their safe for safekeeping. And so, the same idea applies here. Paul wants to deposit into Timothy's mind the things that he had taught him for safekeeping. So understand that this crucial ministry of training the right kind of men, faithful men, is more than simply passing on experiential wisdom. It's much more than learning how to do practical service. It's much more than being taught the basic gospel truths and fundamental doctrines. It's much more than that. It's enlisting the right men to carefully and systematically train for the specific purpose of preserving the church. Without trained men, and I'm not talking about seminary trained men. You don't have to go to seminary to be a pastor or elder. Just one way to be trained. But men, I don't care how long you've been saved. You need to be trained. You need to continue to deepen your knowledge and continue to expand your knowledge in every area of theology. Without that, without those truths having been deposited into the minds of men, what's the consequence? There is a severe lack of knowledge. And you know what happens when there is a severe lack of knowledge in the church? Hosea 4, verse 6 reminds us, my people are what? Destroyed for lack of knowledge. Destroyed. Meaning that without knowing and understanding what God has revealed, you are walking down a narrow path surrounded by steep cliffs, with no guardrails on the side. And as soon as the day comes, and it will come if it hasn't already, when you are confronted with false teaching or heresy, when the day comes if it hasn't already, that you become 
incontrollably enticed by the pleasures of this world and the secular ideas of this world. When the day comes when you go through that terrible trial, you will inevitably veer off the path and fall if you have a lack of knowledge. Just like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress who wandered off the path repeatedly when he was misled and misinformed. But more important, without men in your church who are concerned with training, you'll maintain an elementary view of the glory of God and your life will be about glorifying self, which ultimately ends in judgment. That's where a lack of knowledge takes you. So pray. Pray for the leaders in this church to persist in our efforts to entrust biblical doctrine to the right kind of men. Pray fervently for Eckstein, that they will not grow weary as they labor in a hard area, harder than ours, to recruit and train the right men to establish a healthy, Bible-driven, Christ-centered church in the heart of Berlin. Pray for the ministry of training to flourish. Because if that flourishes, everything else will. Now, I've alluded to Paul's qualification several times so far. What do I mean by the right kind of men? What did I mean earlier by that bold statement I made about not every believer should be trained to the same level? Because Paul is very precise here. You see? He says, faithful men. Who are these faithful men? Well, they are the spiritually devout men whom have proven themselves in their love for the Lord and the church. Note how love for Christ and love for the brethren go hand in hand. I cannot tell you how often I hear people say that they're a Christian but are not involved in a local church. That's like me going up to you, brother, and say, man, I love you. You're a cool guy, but guess what? I despise your wife. How many of you men would want to lose sanctification for a second? The church of Jesus Christ is his bride. And he purchased it with his blood. Love her. Serve her. Be committed to her because Christ is. So these faithful men, they love the Lord. They're good churchmen. They are men who have displayed proven spiritual character and giftedness to teach the word effectively and handle it accurately. You guys know who Charles Spurgeon is? Spurgeon was, 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 was a guy in England, who really well-known pastor in England in the 1800s. He, 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 was, he was not formally trained. And so a lot of lazy men use him as an excuse not to get trained. But guess what Charles Haddon Spurgeon did? He started a pastor's college. <laughs> and before you could even get into the college to get trained, you had to demonstrate your ability to preach. And that's wise. Aaron and I could tell you that some of our brothers that we love and we know, they get through two and a half years of seminary. That's, that's a lot of work, you know. They get to the preaching lab, which is kind of like the culmination of the whole program. You know, because you get to apply the theology you learned. You get to apply the homiletics. You get to apply the practical theology, the languages. So, you know, the preaching classes are kind of like the, the exit exam. Some brothers, it's not a whole lot, but there's a few who get to that preaching lab and they drown they, they, they sink because the Lord has not gifted them to stand up before men and women and accurately and boldly explain the scriptures some men just get up there and they freeze right some of you are very gifted at interpersonal relationships right some of you are just 
so sweet and love to serve people, right? But then you get up in front of a group of people, and it's like you lose your voice, right? Well, the faithful men that Paul discusses in 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, they have to be able to communicate God's word. They're going to teach, right? So these faithful men, these are men who have proven themselves in their love for the Lord, love for the church, and they have proven their giftedness. So what I meant earlier when I say that not every professing believer should be trained to the same level, what I mean is the brothers that don't have the gift and desire to teach and preach, we're not going to spend the time to try to train them, right? It's, it's, like, it's like teaching a, a blind man how to see. The, the men who may have good intentions and are genuinely saved, but they're not too dependable. They're, they're not going to really even want to go deep into the Scriptures. So I'm not, I'm not going to invest my time in that, right? So that's what I meant. That you, the qualifications for faithful men to be taught so that they can teach others who will take the mantle. That is God's design. That is God's means for preserving the church. God always has a means. He is sovereign. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but the means by which he will not allow the gates of hell to prevail against the church is through the training and ministry of faithful men. Then they are to teach others also. If the church is to remain strong, then the leaders must be strong, and the leaders cannot become strong if they are not built up in the Word of God. They can only be built up and equipped if the men whom have gone before them entrust them with the sound words of the teaching of Scripture. Now, in closing, even though this command does clearly apply to pastors, right? I think I've convinced you of that at least. There's also a wider application. In a broad sense, parents, Sunday school teachers, and nursery workers are also responsible to pass on God's word to those who are under their care. We can go to other scriptures, right? Ephesians 6. Fathers, in particular, train your children. Titus 2. Women are to teach other women to be lovers of their husbands, workers at home, lovers of their children. Men... You older men are to be sound in the faith, right? To disciple young men. So there, is, so there is an aspect, even if you're not a pastor, even if you're not one of these faithful men in this context, you still need to be involved in entrusting the word of God to those whom God has put in your care. Church leaders are commanded to equip the saints. And believers are to teach each other. But as we've seen from 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, one of the primary responsibilities of pastors and missionaries is to train faithful men who will be able to teach others also. May SV Bible Church and Eckstein be obedient to our master in strengthening the current generation and next generation of men who will take up the mantle of gospel ministry until Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time again. Thank you that you have given us clear commands and clear guidance on how we ought to conduct our ministries. Father, please help me and Aaron to be true shepherds, true 
spiritual, faithful men who will teach other faithful men who will later teach others. What a high calling. What a privilege. Give us the strength to do it, Lord. In Jesus' name.